Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from the OECD's Pillar 2 to U.S. tax developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Check out PwC's Policy on Demand news platform that provides in-depth insights and analysis on tax policy developments. Policy on Demand is now available for free at policyondemand.pwc.com. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in our Policy on Demand studio in Washington, D.C., where I'm excited to be joined by Jason Black. Jason is a partner in the Federal Tax Services Group of PwC's Washington National Tax Services Practice. Jason, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Happy to be here. All right, so Jason, before we dive into the corporate alternative minimum tax, formerly known as the book minimum tax, there's been a lot of press recently about the lack of accounting majors and yet a very high demand for them in the market. You have an accounting degree and a master's from the University of Florida. Want to give a shout out to Gary McGill. Um, Jason, what do you enjoy about your job and what would you tell someone considering an accounting major? Go Gators, by the way. Um, so I would probably say that what I like about my job the most is that it is constantly changing. I've been with the firm for over 14 years. I have been in multiple different roles within the firm. Um, and I'd say like basically every day that I come to, to the office, I don't have a set agenda for what I'm going to be doing that day. Um, and that, that's pretty exciting to me on a day-to-day basis because I, I don't like as much of the structure of around my uh, schedule. So I do think learning something new every day, having the, the ability to kind of solve difficult problems with our, with our, uh, with our clients um, yeah. is, is really helpful. Or yeah, really and, and the, the other thing that I would mention, and maybe this is a good transition to, to the camp here, is that um, you know, I have an accounting undergrad, went to law school, um, frankly kind of thought that I would get away from accounting was one of the reasons that I went to law school, and, and I've been at the firm for almost 25 years in this point. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is now how we're going to be talking about this, this corporate alternative minimum tax, and you know I've spent a lot of time thinking about Pillar 2. We're now back to financial statements, right, as the basis now for, for these taxes. And I frankly have been cracking open my accounting textbooks. And so um, I think it's very fascinating. I love learning new things. The fact that we're in a very dynamic practice area really resonates with me because like no days within my 25-year career have been the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I think it's important for people to recognize, particularly that are early in their careers, that are early in their education process, thinking about their careers, that there's just going to continue to be a huge demand for accounting. I think one of the challenges that we have as a profession is this 150-hour requirement, but it seems like the tides may be turning in that, and I certainly think that could potentially help the profession. Absolutely. So, all right, so let's get into the material. Um, <laughs> in August of 2022, the president signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, which enacted, despite my best efforts to try to refer to this thing as the book minimum tax, a corporate alternative minimum tax based on adjusted financial statement income of applicable corporations. Obviously, all of those are defined terms. The CAMPT, as it is now known, is effective for tax years beginning after December 31st, 2022. I would encourage listeners interested in the topic for additional background to check out my podcast from August of last year called the IRA and Book Minimum Tax, Not a Pillar 2 Podcast. So Jason, before we talk about the notice, can you remind listeners what is the camp and who's subject to it? Absolutely. And, and some might 
remember back to pre-TCJA uh, days when there was a corporate alternative minimum tax. Right. It got struck um, as part of that, that bill, and now it's back. It's, it's enacted under the exact same code section as uh, old corporate alternative minimum tax okay. was, was enacted. So this is a 15% minimum tax based on book income, effectively book income. It's adjusted financial statement income, which is net income from an applicable financial statement, generally going to be your audited financial statement if you're public 10K. Um, and then you, you make a variety of adjustments. There's about 12 to 15 under the statute that you have to adjust your net income to. Multiply that by 15%, and that's your tentative minimum tax. Mm -hmm. From there, you, re re uh, you reduce that by regular income tax and beat. And if you have a positive amount, you pay corporate alternative minimum tax. Um, what's good to know is that this is, this is intended to be a temporary tax. Right. Um, so you, do, you are afforded a credit. When you do pay it in any given year, you are afforded a credit. Um, we, do have, we have seen some taxpayers that are just going to be perpetual kind of camped payers, that those credits might get usable at some point. But by the time they do, it's not going to have as much benefit to them at, at that point. Which obviously um, has its own financial statement implications yes, for those public companies. Exactly. Right. So, so companies are definitely thinking about, you know, what is the realizability of, of these credits if I am generating them? Um, the other important thing to note, and we'll, I think we'll, co we'll come back to this a little bit later in the podcast, but I will remind taxpayers that could fall within this that will be able to use those future credits that I, I think it, it would be tenuous to argue that those would be good, qualified, refundable tax credits under the Pillar 2 rules. Mm -hmm. So if a U.S. taxpayer was using those credits in a future period where they were potentially subject to an income inclusion rule or under tax profit rule, um, that, they, that could cause them to fall into the Pillar 2 soup. And I'm Jason, I'm already going to apologize that we're not even five minutes in and I already mentioned Pillar 2. Um, but because uh, this is not supposed to be a Pillar 2 exactly. podcast. But I think it is important for taxpayers to know both inbound and outbound um, that, that that is an important issue for, for taxpayers to be mindful of. That's, that's right. Yeah, so it's not, and, it, and important to note, you did note that it's applicable corporation. So what is an applicable corporation? It's, it's anything, it's corporations other than RICs, REITs, and S-Corps. So just like if you're familiar with the BEAT rules, Similar exclusion for those types of types of corporations. So it's only going to be those types of corporations that meet what's, what's a three-year average annual AFSI test. Um, so this law comes into effect for 2023. Calendar year taxpayers are going to look at their AFSI from 2022, 2021, and 20, and take a three-year average. And if that exceeds $1 billion, they are going to be considered an applicable corporation. I will note that that's for normal, you know, publicly traded U.S. corporation. If you're an inbound, um, foreign parented multinational group, mm -hmm. as the as the statute defines it, and that's typically just a, a entity that is parented by a foreign corporation. Right. Um, there is a two prong test. It's one: you look at the financial statement income of the entire foreign parented multinational group, and then separately you kind of look below the foreign corp. And, and so you, that first test is a billion dollars on the financial statement of the whole group. And then you kind of look below the foreign parent, and is that above $100 million uh, just on that basis alone? And there's, there's various adjustments that you make to, to net income to get to those numbers, which are probably kind of, we probably won't get into a lot of those here, but just to know that there's a separate kind of test for foreign parented multinational um, groups. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's important is that it is, it's net income. 
right? This yep. is profit or an approximation with these adjustments of, of net income. And I think some of the confusion, and again, I'm gonna raise with pillar two, the pillar two thresholds are top line revenue, right? For you to fall into the potential pillar two soup, and that's at 750 million euro top line revenue. This, you know, I think we've, we've been calling the AFSI really is, is analogous to net income or profit. So it's a much higher threshold uh, right for 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 taxpayers to to potentially be subject to the CAMT. That's right. Yeah, and and important kind of determining whether you're an applicable corporation is is um, it's really important because once you are an applicable corporation, the rules don't contemplate ever not becoming an applicable corporation. Once um, you're in the soup, you're yeah, in the soup. Once you're in the soup, you're in the soup. Of course, I think we'll talk about this, but. There is deference to Treasury to write rules to get you out of the soup once you're in. Um, so far, we don't have anything that tells us that, but generally you're going to be in. Once you're in, you're in. Right. Um, and then once you're in, you compute AFSI for purposes of paying the tax. So you're, everybody that's kind of close to the $1 billion test should be computing for 2023 their AFSI to see if they're going to be an applicable corp. And then if they are, do they have a liability? Um, under the under the regime. All right. Well, the statute, and you already alluded to this, <laughs> but in my view, provided unprecedented deference to Treasury to sort out the details of these rules. And so on December 27, 2022, four days before the effective date of the rules, Treasury released Notice 2023-7, providing interim guidance on the CAMT. In summary, and then we'll break some of this down, we'll double-click on this, <laughs> as we like to say, what did the notice cover? Um, so it, it covered, I'd say, four key kind of broad topics. It covered um, what to do with certain types of entities. I think it, it, it dealt with transactional-related, M&A transactional-related mm -hmm. guidance with corporations. Um, that's probably, and dealing with troubled corporations and how to treat uh, cancellation of debt income. So that's kind of one, the first section of the notice, and, and it's very meaty. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I think that was in response to, I think there were uh, numerous comment letters that said, we're undergoing actual transactions and we need to know whether, whether and how this is gonna impact um, our liability under, under CAMT. Um, next, dealt with depreciation. There's a, numer a, a number of different issues about how you compute depreciation There's, uh, for purposes of uh, CAMT. We haven't touched into all of the adjustments, but there is a, a special adjustment uh, intended to be a taxpayer favorable adjustment where you take your net income from your financial statements and adjust it basically to give you credit for tax depreciation, accelerated yep. tax depreciation. Um, there's a safe harbor also that, that taxpayers can use to determine whether or not they uh, are going to be a, an applicable corporation for the first taxable year right. in which they're subject. And then finally- We all love safe harbors. <laughs> safe harbors. Safe harbors yeah. are good, generally. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this one, maybe not as helpful as we would have liked, but, right. but it, safe harbor nonetheless. And then finally, um, how to treat certain foreign, um, or so, sorry, for certain federal income tax credits that were, were created under uh, both the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. Okay. Um, what didn't it cover? Because like, there, there's a pretty long list, right? Yeah, there's a pretty long list, and, and I'll say it covered nothing from an international perspective. Yeah. So there are some key issues from an international perspective. I think you could talk about those better than I can. Yeah. Um, but th there are some key international issues that it didn't cover. I think it, it didn't cover um, 
kind of treatment of mark to market mm -hmm. on on financial statements and how to how to deal with that. Um, and it again, it didn't tell you how to not be an applicable corporation once you right. once you are. There's about three pages of requested comments at the end of yeah. the at the end of the notice. Um, so so Treasury's actively working, but mm. they felt that this is the the most important stuff. Yeah, they yeah I will acknowledge this is a big lift for Treasury, right? <laughs> yes. Because of the unprecedented deference given, this is a big lift for, for, for Treasury. Yeah, they, they were busy. Um, right. and, and they got a lot of comment letters, and I think they, they did a really good job on uncovering kind of the, the key issues so far. All right, so let's start with the safe harbor because everybody likes a, a good <laughs> safe harbor to be able to potentially try to simplify things. Um, how do those rules work? Yep, so, so this is a safe harbor that only works for one taxable year. It's, it's intended to only work for the first year in which corporations are subject, uh, or potentially subject to CAMT, so calendar year 2023. Um, what it does is takes those billion dollar thresholds and that $100 million threshold I talked about for foreign parents and multinational groups, it just cuts them in half. So instead of having, uh, you know, for the normal domestic parented group, it's normally a, a three-year average of $1 billion over three years. They cut it down to $500 million over three years. So definitely helps. And, and, and in, making, in making that determination, a lot of the, you know, the 12 to 15 adjustments that are in the statute are ignored. Um, some are still taken into account, but, but largely most of them are ignored for purposes of, of computing AFSI. Um, and then on the foreign parented multinational group, test, the two-prong test, did the exact same thing. Cut the $1 billion down to $500 million and cut the $100 million down to $50 million. Um, so I think it's helpful. Um, I'm not sure how many people will fall into the safe harbor given how su substantive the cut is from, from the right. normal it's test. Right, it's meaningful. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, but, but I think it does give someone at least an out to, you know, to give just not have to look at it. Yeah. Right. Give them a year, but yeah. presumably you, you you obviously you know still need to be able to, to to the extent that you're publicly traded, the financial statement auditors, and uh, and then it, but get ready because the next year you're still going to have to to do the math and deal with kind of this opening balance sheet challenge for the camp T that, yeah. that that we're gonna get into here. And, and for some taxpayers, it's gonna be well they're gonna go through the kind of mechanics of the safe harbor. They're gonna fail the safe harbor, and then gonna have to go do the second test to make to see if they cover the one billion. So it's actually adding potentially an extra step for for people once they fail the safe harbor. Right. Um, and for those that listened to <laughs> my last podcast on Pillar Two, where we discussed the safe harbors with the country by country report, very similar type type of issues. Mm -hmm. And I will remind listeners again that this is not a Pillar Two <laughs> podcast, but uh, um, very kind of it's amazing to me kind of the similarities yet we'll talk about this is not you know the the camp t is not a pillar to ir qualifying ir so um let's talk about kind of one of the other big pieces of the notice was some adjustments for depreciation and maybe we start with cost of goods sold yep so i think i'll, I'll level set with the kind of what the normal adjustment says and and it's kind of going to be a little in the code here, but, but the rules basically say when computing depreciation for purposes of, of AFSI, what you do is reverse all of the depreciation expense that's running through your, your books and then layer in as a subtraction 
tax depreciation, mm -hmm. effectively. Tax depreciation under Section 167 uh, for property that's subject to 168. So that's maker's property. That's your normal stuff that's typically eligible for bonus. Um, what the statute didn't say is that, it, and this is super kind of nuanced, like ivory tower type stuff. Mm -hmm. And if for those that are familiar with the 163J rules. Which is the interest the, limitation yeah, rules. Yes, the interest yeah. limitation rules. Many of people, our listeners are. Yes, people will hearken back to, to something that was in that statute. So the statute under, under um, uh, enacting CAMTI says it's, for tax purposes, it's depreciation deductions allowed. And allowed means like a really specific thing in the tax code. It means the things that you're actually deducting on your that return. Allowable. Allowed. Uh, yeah, allowed. Allowable right. is what you're permitted to deduct. Right. Allowed is what you do deduct. Mm -hmm. So what's nuances here is that back to 163J, interest limitation, that statute said deductions for depreciation, allowable. And, and quickly, practitioners pointed out, well, if my depreciation's running through cost of goods sold because it was capitalized to in my inventory, that's not a deduction. That's a reduction to gross receipts or gross right. income under Section 61. So the statute was identical or very similar so the first thing that came in was let's Treasury clarified that we when we said de depreciation deductions allowed we meant stuff that reduces taxable income. Okay. So you get to you get to reduce your book or, or reduce AFSI by both depreciation deductions allowed and depreciation running through as cost of goods sold. But the key difference here is that under 163J, uh, Treasury said we don't care if some of that depreciation is still sitting in ending inventory. We're going to let you take it all um, as, a, as a subtraction under, for ATI purposes. Mm -hmm. Here, they did cap it at just the amount of depreciation that has run through cost of goods sold. So if you think about it, if I have $100 of depreciation capitalized to inventory and I disposed of 90% of my inventory, $90 went through cost of goods sold, but that $10 is left sitting in ending inventory. Right. That's going to be an adjustment next year when this inventory is sold. So, I mean, what this <laughs> means is that companies are going to have to create this separate set of books, yes. right, in addition to their gap and tax and pillar two and now Camp T for those that are, are anywhere close to those revenue thresholds to now track these uh, these differences. Yeah, it's, it's, and I think maybe, you know, I think there will be commentary on this and, and I think IRS and Treasury did ask for comments on this specific rule, like how, how do you, or how are you going to deal with the, how are you going to determine what's actually run through cost of goods sold? Right. So they understand it's not going to be a simple task. Um, but what I found sometimes is when there's favorable rules, uh, they, they feel as though taxpayers will work out a way to comply with a favorable rule. So what about transition? I know that was so the transition yep. <laughs> rules um, and how far back do taxpayers need to go um, on, on some of this depreciation? Issues? Yeah, that, that, that was a requested by a lot of people trying to clarify how far back do I need to look to compute this depreciation adjustment? Can I just look at assets that were placed in service after, on or after 1-1-2023? Uh, IRS and Treasury clarified, no. It goes all the way back. So if you have assets placed in service in 2015 that are still being depreciated for book, maybe even just book purposes, that would go into your adjustment. So there is no cutoff date mm -hmm. for purposes of, of um, computing this adjustment. Right. So taxpayers need to, to get started yes. in, in, in getting that kind yeah. of opening, the camped opening yeah. balance sheet established. 
All right, what about issues on disposition of assets before these rules were in place, particularly with respect to bonus depreciation? Yeah, so I think in addition, the statute didn't allow, the statute didn't provide for a rule on how to deal with dispositions of depreciable property. So they gave a rule kind of over the lifetime of the asset, how to deal with adjustments, but they didn't say anything about dispositions. Again, harken back to the 163J rules. They also had a rule for in a uh, subtraction, uh, or sorry, in addition for depreciation deductions and then a subtraction when you sold the asset for the gain. Um, similar here, when you dispose of the assets, you have to recompute your AFSI mm-hmm. ta- basis in the asset. Um, so you do have to have an adjustment on the back end when you dispose of assets. All of these adjustments are really getting at just reverse your book depreciation and get back to what tax depreciation is. So it's conceptually not a not a hard like calculation, but I think practically it's going to be difficult for some some taxpayers. Right. And it goes back to the systems issues yeah. and how do you kind of create the process yeah. to create to track this yeah. this this separate uh, camped. Yeah, balance. I think I think most companies would say they have issues with fixed assets to, generally right. just from a, under the normal yes, rules. Yes, under the normal rules because you're typically dealing with You've got federal rules, you've got state rules, right. you've got now QBI uh, for, for purposes of computing like FDII or guilty. Right. So it's, there's like just a lot going on with depreciable assets. Right. All right. So um, the last thing about on the depreciation side, repairs. I know yep. this is something that has caused a lot of questions. Yep. So a lot, a lot of companies, so methods of accounting. You can choose multiple different methods of accounting on how you, how you compute taxable income. A lot of taxpayers choose a, a more favorable method with respect to their repairs and maintenance expenses. So they determine if it doesn't yield a improvement under, under the tax law, you can deduct the repair and maintenance expenditures as you pay or incur them. For, tax, for book purposes, sometimes those repair and maintenance expenditures, expenditures may actually give rise to a book asset because the, the standards are not identical for gap and tax. So the, the guidance clarified that if you deduct repairs under this you know, more favorable tax method but have a book asset, that those, neither the book asset nor the tax deduction for repairs are taken into account in computing the depreciation uh, AFSI adjustment. And that was something taxpayers were looking for a benefit there because they, they wanted to get the benefit of, sure. of the, the cost that they effectively did depreciate. They just took the depreciation faster. Got it. Um, is, is what their view was. All right. So let's move away from depreciation, head into what we're just going to yes. kind of hodgepodge of M&A and reorg considerations. Yep. Um, so let's start first with, and this is something obviously I do a lot of, to deal work, the non-recognition transactions. Yep. What, what did the notice tell us about non-recognition transactions? Yep. So the, the notice effectively said you can, there are going to be a number of non-recognition transactions from that happen that give rise to book gain or loss. Um, so the notice basically said if you have a transaction that would be non-taxable, that is non-taxable, so think your 332 liquidations, mm-hmm. 351s, 721s, reorgs. Right. So if you have one of those, it, it is not treated as um, resulting as any, in any gain or loss from a book perspective. So book has income or, or loss attributable to a transaction such as that. 
it gets reversed. So you don't take it into account, which is good news. Right. I think there was comment letters out there that said, hey, I'm undergoing a split off. Right. And a split off gives rise to book income, but it's a non-taxable transaction. Right. So I shouldn't have to have a camped liability on a non-taxable transaction. And, and IRS and Treasury effectively said, yeah, I think we agree there. Um, the corollary there is that if you don't get the, so typically if you have a book income, you might also have book basis that mm -hmm. gets created as a result of that transaction. Here's another tracking nightmare, but the, the notice says you have to reduce that book basis back down to what it was pre-transaction. So you, you don't have to pick up the, the book income, but you also don't get the benefit or you don't have to take into account the book change in basis. Right, and this is again a very another similar kind of issue that taxpayers have to challenge, to face with pillar two is sort of tracking this this basis and kind of ignoring, you know, necessarily the book basis or making an adjustment for that. Yeah. So the, the tracking nightmare is probably well well stated. Yeah, and 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 don't stop there because not only do you have to track it, you again no transition rule here. So, right. so, so you, you might have had transactions that occurred before a camp was even contemplated. Um, decade or yeah. decades <laughs> De ago. Decades ago. And you have to kind of, to the extent you still have those assets on hand, right. you have to kind of trace back. Um, so I, I'm not sure if that was intentional or, or if mm. companies will, will comment on that, but it is something that I think people were, were thinking that they had some amortization from, so amortization doesn't have an adjustment. So what's typically running through your book income um, is permitted as a reduction to AFSI. So people have you know, potentially amortization from non-taxable transactions that they were thinking sheltered their camped liability. Right. But they might not have that anymore given this, given this rule because they might have created some basis out of a non-taxable transaction that they don't actually get to reduce AFSI by. Right. One thing I will note on the non-recognition transaction for listeners is that there is a special rule for what they refer to as component transactions. And so if as part of like, for example, a split off or spin off or whatever, there were some taxable income that was recognized as part of those, uh, as a component to that overall plan, for example, under 357C or, you know, boot and a reorg or whatever, those amounts are included. So you do actually kind of have to go yep. through all the various components and any taxable piece is included in that AFS. Side. Yeah, so your hundred-page step plan, you you gotta <laughs> right, you gotta you gotta go through step by step and figure out yeah. where that tax is. All right, so let, let's cover a couple other areas. Um, consolidated groups. There yep. were some special rules for consolidated groups. Yep. So the 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 statute, and I think this is what some how some people were reading it already, but but the the notice just basically in one sentence says this is a consolidated group yeah. liability. It is not a sub-by-sub -sub liability, which then creates a whole other set of issues that, do you have camped attributes that like, when you spin off a company or when you sell a sub, like what happens with mm -hmm. potentially, like if there's a credit that was created, who gets the credit? Does it stay with the consolidated group? Does it get allocated partially to the sub? Does it, so it's, it's gonna be, I mean, these are things that probably will be contemplated at some point, but aren't. Yeah, no, great point. Um, what about, uh, there were some special rules on, on COD, on cancellation of indebtedness income, which given our current environment, and uh, potential recessionary environment, may be more applicable for, for, for more companies than they had hoped. Yeah, and I think this is a, a 
taxpayer favorable rule, and it, it basically, similar to the non-recognition rule, it basically says if it would be excluded Cody under Section 108, but it gives rise to book income or book gain, um, you don't have to pick up that, that book, book gain. Um, what's similar to 108 is that they, they talk about, you know, when you reduce attributes as a result of, of excluding CODI under 108, the, the notice contemplates reducing camped attributes, but doesn't say what camped attributes are. So presumably it's, you know, there's, F, there's a separate FTC regime that might have a carry forward. Mm-hmm. There's a separate, uh, there's financial statement NOLs that might get reduced. There's obviously the, the camped credit that might get reduced, but the notice contemplates a reduction of attributes, but does not say what those attributes are or the ordering of, right. of how you would reduce the attributes. So it might be something to comment on. Yes, Hopefully yes. some additional information we get those proposed regs. All right, let's talk briefly about partnerships. Okay. Um, and uh, what, what did the, the notice tell us about partnerships? Yep, so there, I'll, I'll lay out first that there's a special rule with respect to partnerships. So when a corporation owns an interest in a partnership, the general rule is that you have to know, and this is really difficult, but you have to know the partnership's AFSI. So the partnership needs to compute its AFSI um, in and of itself using the same adjustments that a corporation has to. But then the corporation only picks up its distributive share of the partnership's AFSI. So notice does not define what distributive share is, by the way, and that's something, a huge open item for a lot of our you know, sub-K colleagues that are that are looking for for guidance on how to how to apply these rules but but the normal rule is you only pick up your distributive share of the the lower lower tier partnership what the the rules under uh, when determining whether you are an applicable corporation um, and determining the afsi of of kind of the corporation the rules say not only do i have to pick up that corporation's um, afsi i also have to pick up anybody that's related or, or is treated as a single employer under Section 52A and 52B, and these are really nuanced rules. But right. they basically say if you if you own greater than 50% of something, you pick up 100% of their AFSI as well. Um, and then they say you disregard two rules, and in determining this um, the AFSI, you disregard two rules. The two rules you disregard are this partnership distributive share rule, and a rule relating to pensions, which we're not going to talk about. But and commenters were wondering, well, is that rule there so that I don't, in a situation where I aggregate my partnership, is that rule there so that I don't pick up more than 100% of the partnership? So, like, I would pick up under 52A or 52B, 100% of the partnership. Mm-hmm. And then is that rule getting turned off so that I don't pick up, like, also my distributive share to have, like, say, 115% of the partnership? Right. That wouldn't make sense. No. So a lot of commenters read it as, oh, it's just there when you aggregate. The notice says no. The, you turn that distributive share rule off in all circumstances, whether or not you aggregate that partnership under 52B. And that creates kind of a, it, it clarifies the rule and it makes it relatively clear now. But what it does is it creates a kind of issue in some circumstances where you have gap consolidation mm-hmm. where you might not expect it. And then one of the situations is, is anybody that underwent an up C, yeah. if they went public kind of through a partnership. What happens is typically the public company, when it goes public, all it owns is an interest in a partnership. And it's usually a minority interest, right. well below 50%. The US gap consolidation rules say, well, you control. Because you control that partnership, we're going to mm-hmm. make you consolidate. 
So if you ever look at one of an upsea, kind of a, a company in an upsea structure, you'll see a really big net income number. And then you'll have a really large reduction to net income for non-controlling interest. Right. To, and then you come back to just net income attributable to your controlling interest. Um, but the rules are very explicit that they say you take the net income line from the 10K or the financial statements. And that is the 100% of the partnership. Mm -hmm. So a lot of uh, the upsea kind of taxpayers are, are concerned with, I'm not that big. I'm, right. not, I'm nowhere near a billion dollars. But if you pick up 100% of the partnership, I, I might be. Right. Um, so I think that's something that, that probably will be commented on. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think it's the right conceptual answer to be able to, to have to pick up 100% of the partnership. But it's, it's definitely kind of, I've, I see the question floating around in a lot of circles. An important trap for the unwary and particularly yes. for those that may think that, you know, those public companies that may think they're below the threshold yeah. because they have this minority interest and they may actually need to include all of it for purposes of, of computing their, their camped income. Yeah. All right, so um, one to spend because this is the Cross-Border Tax mm -hmm. Talks podcast on some of the international tax issues. And um, there are a number, right? And we haven't seen any guidance on this. So hopefully we'll, you know, the next, some of the next interim guidance. Really, the two big issues, Jason, frankly, that I've been seeing in the international space is the first is the issue on the, the double taxation of dividends, just the way the mechanics of those calculations work is you're picking up the income of the, the foreign subsidiary. And then if you make any distributions, you're also including that. So it's really a double, double counting under kind of a strict reading of the, of the statute. I think the hope for many of us is that that will get fixed. You know, how they do that adjustment, I'm not sure. Um, that is certainly one of the issues. Um, another one of the issues that, that, that I've seen is related to, to foreign tax credits. Um, you know, in many cases, uh, a U.S. company, a, a company's U.S. tax year may differ from the tax year of the local jurisdiction, right? Because, you know, they need to keep a calendar year and maybe in the U.S. it's a, it's a fiscal year. And so how those, the determination of how those foreign tax credits work for purposes of the CAMT, an, a, another open issue. And again, that is just an example of, of two uh, of long ones. Um, and then I think maybe the last thing to, to, to mention, which, which we already covered briefly, is that um, we, I, st I still get the question, is this CAMT, the book minimum tax, which is based on book income, which is a 15% tax, you know, is this a pillar two income inclusion rule kind of qualified tax? And the, the very short answer is no, it's not. It's the, the adjustments are different. Yes, we start with financial statement income. The underlying adjustments are different, but I think what really differentiates it is how it treats foreign, the, the, the non-U.S. earnings below, and that it does aggregate all of those. It's not separate country, and again, just a, an entirely dif, you know, different set of rules, which means that taxpayers who meet the revenue thresholds for both the camp and the, the Pillar 2 are going to need to set up those separate books with, uh, with the adjustments that you've talked about, with the adjustments for Pillar 2 that I talked about on the, the last podcast. So just a, a lot of complexity for taxpayers to, to deal with. So maybe if we then move on to, and we talked about it a little bit earlier, what future guidance is, is left? And, and I assume, Jason, that, and I think maybe the, the Treasury had already acknowledged, we'll likely get some more interim guidance before we actually see proposed regs. I would think so. Yeah, no, I, and I think they're, they're kind of taking it in tranches and um, in, in what, they, what they take on. And, and 
I, I think, like I said, they, they covered most of the big stuff. Um, and, and the good thing is now we have reliance. Like, companies have something to rely on in the meantime. Right, because the notice, um, great point, can yeah. be relied upon. Yeah. yeah, we saw, like, back in TCGA days, we saw a lot of FAQs. And I, I know taxpayers don't like, you know, FAQs as much because it does not give them the reliance. So at least now there's, there are still a lot of gaps. Mm-hmm. And I think until, I think we still have time um, before this kind of kicks online, but I think companies are starting to disclose some stuff in their financial statements mm-hmm. about, about this as well. So I think this, this definitely, there's a lot of gaps left. Um, so we might still have to you know, take reasonable interpretations of the statute and what we have so far. All right. So maybe in closing then, Jason, what advice do you have for taxpayers and, and advisors for that matter related to the CAMP-T? Yeah. So I, I think commenting is, is really important. And I think the, the, the key thing here is that the government, you know, is doing a great job. They have multidisciplinary, like, folks on this. Yeah. They have, just like our, just like the firm has multidisciplinary uh, they are. They have a lot of people hands on deck, um, but they're still. They don't. They're not seeing the kind of on the ground issues like we mm-hmm. are. So it's it's definitely good to comment. Um, I think you got from the date of this notice. There were 60, 60 days. I think we're looking at March March twentieth, twenty twenty three, to submit comments. They've asked for um, a whole litany of things that they want comments on, but they're also open to to whatever comes to to folks' minds. Right. Um, so it, it definitely has helped because I, I think there's been comments. You kind of see direct results of the comments uh, from the first round um, that went into this guidance. So I, I think they're definitely listening, um, and, and they're definitely they're definitely willing to that they wanted to hear from taxpayers. Good. Well, get it. I think getting engaged in the process is always important. Yeah. So Jason, great having you on. Always interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Jason Black, a partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services practice. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.